The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, all, and uh, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, Capital Weekly, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today, thank you very much, is Kathy Reheist Boyd of the, she's CEO and president of the Western States Petroleum Association and knows all things about gasoline, petroleum, and hopefully gas prices, because we're going to ask her about that too. So Kathy, thank you very much for being here. No, thank you guys. Um, the obvious question on everybody's mind is, will these gas price increases stop? Uh, will they flatline at some point? What, what's your best thought about that? Well, I think, first of all, I would be remiss if I didn't start by just saying that, uh, you know, our hearts, our prayers, our support certainly go to the Ukrainian people who are just so courageous and defending their homeland, which is really, frankly, just truly inspirational against uh, really the horrors that are being inflicted on them. So I just wanted to, to start with that. And I know we all share that sentiment. Um, but I also, I, I think what's really disappointing uh, in this conversation right now, and, and I'm going to refer to the governor's state of the state, because instead of looking at what we can do together, I really think, because together, I think we can really create the energy future that balances our environment, our energy, our, ener our what I call energy equity, which is everybody having affordable, reliable energy all the time, everywhere to everyone. Um, and I think instead, the governor is, continues to demonize and exclude and ban innovation of this hardworking industry who can really solve the problems that he's trying, trying to solve and the challenges he's trying to solve with California. So I'm, I'm disappointed because I don't think this is the California way. I think it's actually um, an irresponsible um, action to, to solve these very difficult problems as we go forward. And that gets to your price question, John. As you know, we try every day to supply abundant, reliable, affordable fuel to the people of California because there's 36 million of them who are, or close to, it's going to be close to 40 million, who drive 36 million cars and trucks every day. And we do not have the luxury of not supplying gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel um, to keep this economy moving while we're transitioning to a low carbon economy. And the, the, the price, as you know, in California for the price at pump is, is obviously because of the price of crude oil is the highest element that impacts that. Of course, what's going on globally um, is core to that. But in addition for California, we're $1.20 above the average of the rest of the nation because we have some pretty aggressive policies. And I'm not saying those policies aren't meritorious, but the low carbon fuel standard, the cap and trade program, uh, all of those go into why it costs more just on the base case, let alone what's going on right now in California. And so when you look at what we could do, John, to help in that regard, um, and I was looking at the numbers yesterday, and it's, it's pretty amazing that, you know, in 2016, we produced 463,000 barrels a day of crude oil in the state. And in 2021, we produced 374,000. That's a reduction of 20%. Not because we don't have the oil, because we don't have the permits to get it. And right now there's a thousand permits sitting on the governor's desk through CalGEM to be issued to our members to be able to bring more fuel, more crude oil and, and more available 
fuel in California to the consumers to minimize the cost impacts they're feeling. And when you look at what is imported into California from Russia, I think for the U.S. it's about 209,000 barrels a day, but California is about 50,000 of that. So if we were able to get, get the permits that are sitting on the governor's desk, we could completely offset, more than offset, all of the oil that's being imported into California for Russia. Now, one would think that would be a better choice. So now, just to clarify, you said uh, we get about 50,000 barrels a day from Russian oil. How many barrels a day does California use? What percentage? We, use pretty, well, we, we pretty well use everything that we, that we, you know, we produce here. And that's... I mean, everything we refine here is is what we use in California, and that includes all the refineries in Southern California and all the refineries in Northern California. But we so, would also be getting it from other sources as well, right? Is oh, absolutely. A, is oh, absolutely. Total, total gal, uh, barrels used in California total? Um, I don't have it. Sorry to put you on the spot with the numbers there. Yeah, I don't have it handy, but I can tell you that we use all of the all of the fuel that's produced, all of the fuel that is refined in California is used in California. And I think, but the point is, we, we really need to invest in our California producers who can bring the crew to the refiners to make the fuels that the state needs. And if we don't do that, we are only encouraging additional imports from foreign sources that do not share our values, share our environmental regulations, and in, in essence, increases the impact on greenhouse gas emissions because you got to put it on a tanker from far away places and get it here. So my point, guys, is why would we not in this state be encouraging the production of crude oil in the most environmentally rigorous way possible, in the toughest standards in the world, with the hardworking people that we have, instead of what we're doing now. And instead of now the action taken by the governor to just do more of it, not less. So it's, it's very disappointing for us. It's not a responsible transition in our opinion. And there, let me be clear, there is no one who is, who is against the transition that California wants to make. We just have to make it in a responsible way that minimizes the cost impact to the very people who are disadvantaged and struggling. What, uh, Kathy, what is the, um, uh, how much discretionary authority or how much discretionary power do oil companies have, or retailers, I guess, better said, have in setting uh, the price of gasoline? And I ask that yeah. because I see, uh, and you sent us some great numbers about, you know, the uh, $1.27 per gallon, uh, including excise taxes, sales taxes, fees, underground storage tank fees, uh, et cetera. But it seems as, when we compare the price of gasoline here to the price of gasoline in say um, Wisconsin or Oregon or Oklahoma, it's not a dollar 27 difference. It's a lot more than that. They, there's an ability there's somewhere in there. It's not just the regulatory fees and all those problems that all those penalty, not penalties, but all those costs that are put onto gasoline. At some point, the companies themselves can set the price and how do they do that? How was that? How do? How's that? How does that happen? No, it is. It isn't that case, John. I mean, basically, this is supply and demand. It's the basic. Um, it's the basics of a global commodity. Whether whether you're talking oil, avocados, cotton, 
it's all based on a global economy. And, and as we know right now, the biggest element that impacts the cost of, of a gallon of gasoline is the cost of crude oil. And we are at an all time high, right? We are, we are, I think, in, in essence, above, we're probably getting close to $1.30. I haven't looked recently, but it, it's getting up there. And uh, that's because there's a scarcity. And where did that scarcity come from? It's not just California, right? It is throughout the United States and the energy policies that have been put in place that limit our ability to bring crude oil to market to make valuable products. And we can do that cleaner and safer than anyone in the world, yet we don't do that. We encourage foreign imports and less uh, domestic crude oil production and natural gas production. That's our energy policy. And that's why we are seeing these unbelievable prices. And it has to do with supply and demand. And like I said, we can have policies that correct that. And that doesn't mean those policies are at odds with our desire to transition to a lower carbon economy. I do not think they are independent of one another. I think they are synergistic. And I would make the case that the more we continue to ignore the ability to produce our domestic energy, the more we will set back our ability to get to a lower carbon economy. Because at these prices and this concern and this stress, that's when these elements, actually that's when the elements of a program that California is trying to achieve are put at risk. Because that's not what people are talking about, right? They're talking about affordability. They're talking about reliability. And, and those get sacrificed when energy security is not on the table, in addition to the transition to a lower carbon economy. So we got to do both. You know, I was looking at a federal website, the Energy Information, Administ energy Information Administration, EIA, which I've never heard of until this morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> never heard of it. But um, <laughs> it tracked year by year California crude oil uh, fuel production, I think they call it. Um, and from the early 80s to about the early mid 90s, we were producing about a billion, uh, about a billion uh, barrels a month for that time period that they that they calculated. And then it started going down dramatically. It went down to 800 million, 700 million, 700, uh, or rather 650 million. And the last number I saw was under 400 million barrels. What was that decline? What is that a question of government policy? Is it competition in the industry? Is it both? Is it something else going on? Is it lower uh, consumption, lower demand? No, I, I think it's a direct result of the policies that are being put in place and the signals that are being, you know, been given to investors who will make different decisions. If they don't know their certainty in their ability to produce, then, you know, that dictates their decisions for the future. And, you know, EIA, you mentioned EIA because they are the, they are the official source of all uh, uh, under the arm of Department of Energy that looks at all of the market implications and forecasts. And, and here at the Sarah Week, um, they were talking yesterday, there is no scenario that EIA sees where global demand for oil and gas is not going to increase through 2050. It's still 70% of what we use. And so when I, when I talk about a responsible transition, I use that term in the essence of let's look at the facts of where we are and where we're going. Because if you ignore the facts of where we are and where we're going, my assertion is we'll never get there. 
We will absolutely never get there if we do not take a realistic view. Now, I'm thrilled we have a million electric vehicles. Our companies support electric vehicles. Our companies are putting in electric vehicle charging stations. They're probably doing more research in lithium-ion batteries than anyone, which, which we could talk about the mineral side of this in a minute. But um, And so, you know, we have a million uh, electric vehicles in California. That's wonderful. From when I started talking, there was like 200,000 and we're at a million. But we have 36 million people that drive close to that many cars and trucks. So that's a huge gap. It's not that we can't increase the EV penetration. And as we do, demand for gasoline and diesel will decrease. And at some point in the future, we're going to be able to have that line intersect so that we have a different you know, transportation system going forward. But we, can't, we cannot ignore that scenario. Why is the, uh, this is something I've always wanted to know, why is the cost of gasoline different at say Shell and Chevron as opposed to the little independent guy in the corner who typically has it for less, not always, but typically does. What is it about the independent? Where does that person get? I mean, because I, I assume the cost of oil per barrel, if it's approaching 130, that's the same for everybody. So I'm just wondering, how does yeah, a little- well, for, You know, just on general, I mean, for all the major producers of gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, everybody has their own secret sauce. I think you know that, you know, Chevron has Tecron, right? I mean, you have, you see it all over. Shell has their additives. It's all about the additives. So there is some different with that. Um, but the rest is just competition, right? I mean, when you have four gasoline stations on a corner, that's a lot more competition than when you have uh, one in the entire downtown San Francisco area. So you can see regional differences in pricing, depending on the amount of gas stations, retail stations that one has in a particular geographic location. But what I am always amazed at it, John, is that even with gasbuddy.com, which we all know is a place you go to find the cheapest gas uh, closest to you, that people still will go to a, a gas station with a higher price because they have brand loyalty. And that's just human behavior, right? And so it's all those factors that that literally go into that. But again, the biggest impact, let's not forget the biggest impact on all of this is the price of crude oil. By far, it's 80% of the impact. So if we really want to talk about how do you minimize the cost at the pump, um, it's bring on more supply. Bring on more supply. And if you bring it on in California, you don't also have a transportation cost of getting it here. Because if you can't get crude oil from California to the refiners in California, those refiners have to have a transportation cost added on so that they can get the same crude oil from somewhere else that they would have gotten in their own backyard. So that's another part of that, that difference. Well, I know one of the, um, it always comes up in the discussion is the the factor that inflation plays in uh, the cost of gasoline over time. And I saw uh, figures yesterday that said that the highest spike before now in, in gasoline was in, in the price of gasoline was 2008 when it was 459, it averaged 459 a gallon. Uh, if you factor that, if you go forward on that factor in inflation, that would be the equivalent of about 580 a gallon now, which is a bit more than it was yesterday. The number I saw was 559, so it's a bit more. But the problem for the driver is the time factor, the window is so compressed. Two weeks ago, that person might have been paying 379 a gallon. I think February 24th, AAA said 379 in California on the average. And then 
little over two weeks later, it's five something. It's in the space of a couple of weeks, it's gone up two bucks. So yes, inflation plays a part, but for the driver who's putting gas in the tank, he remembers, he or she remembers the last time he filled up and this time it's costing him 20 bucks more or 30 bucks more for a tank. Yeah, you know, and, the, and they don't understand and I don't, you know, nobody dives into this right on an everyday basis, but they don't understand also what the impact on the cost of crude is. And it's, and, and, and like I said, it, it's the biggest impact. And so when you have prices at $64 a barrel and now you're at, you know, going close to, you know, 130, it's, it's a big difference. And yes, so that, that's the main issue that I think is certainly on everybody's top of the discussion here is, you know, you know, the theme at Sarah week is pace of change energy, climate, and innovation. And then you overlay energy security on that. And that's really what everybody's talking about. What is the, how can you balance energy security and assure that you're going to still be on the right track for the transition? And it is doable. It is absolutely doable if we join forces together and talk about the right policies that achieve both. And it, again, I make the assertion at the beginning of this, I think you must have both energy security and energy transition working together to get where we want to go. Or you're going to see what's happening now. And we've been talking about this for a long time. And now it is right in front of us because of, unfortunately, the crisis situation we're in. But, it, you know, this, the, this impact is certainly predictable based on the scarcity of the, the very product that drives it here in the United States of crude oil and natural gas. So those policies have a direct impact. And it, I hope it's time. I, I hate this to be the wake up call. My God, it would be much better if we had a, a more practical, logical conversation. But I hope that this gets people to understand the sensitivity of the global marketplace and, the play, and, and how this, this commodity plays in it. And that supply and demand are real. And when you have a lack of supply, it causes you know, extreme problems. And we can correct that. We can correct a lack of supply, absolutely can correct it. And we do not have to jeopardize the environment to do it. How do we influence the price setting? Uh, the big producers, I, I, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, big Middle East producers have a, have a leading role in setting how much uh, crude oil costs per, per barrel of crude oil. They're not the only ones, but how do we influence that in the States, if we're importing uh, large amounts of foreign oil, and I think we're getting, I thought the numbers you had were 52% come in from Canada from, uh, for, for, for California production. How do we influence the cost of oil? So just as we've talked previously, John, we influence by increasing our own supply. So you do it. So you increase your own supply. And we can do that right here in California starting tomorrow if we had a governor who was willing to do so. And, and we stand ready. We stand ready as an industry in this state to bring on more supply to influence the cost at the pump. It's that simple. This isn't rocket science. So how do we influence it? We make the decision, just say yes. That's how we influence, say yes. Grant the permits for us to bring more supply to the state of California so we can minimize the impact of foreign imports, wherever they're coming from. And in particular, if we've got any coming from Russia, we should be focused on that. But um, that, that's how you do it. 
Well, given no, you don't do things earth. like you don't do things like eliminate the Keystone Pipeline from Canada. Our our friends in Canada. Instead, what are we doing? We're in, and now instead of asking you know Russia for more crude oil, we're asking Venezuela. Seriously, where we put the same kind of you know <laughs> the same kind of restrictions on supply two years ago, and so again we're going to ask everybody else except the U.S producers i i i am appalled well given the traditional antipathy towards petroleum products and fossil fuels that the environmental community has is there any common ground there at all uh clearly of climate change fighting climate change and environmental issues are driving a lot of this is there any common ground between the oil producers and the oil fighters. But I, there, I, in my opinion, I think there's a lot of common ground. I mean, there's probably, I would say here today, we're in every hour, there's probably 40 sessions going on every hour uh, of, of the entire day on, on how you achieve that balance. And I can tell you, it's an exciting conversation because every oil and gas producer, every oil and gas refiner, are talking about all of the innovative ways that they are gonna reduce emissions and bring lower carbon fuels to marketplace. And that's investment in alternative and renewable fuels as well. So it's huge. I mean, it, we should all be celebrating the innovation going on right now between um, what the environmental community wants and desires and what our industry is delivering to meet that desire. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I think one of the other things I'll just put on the table, and I, and I just heard this yesterday, there was a whole session on, on the mineral side of this equation. As we increase our desire for electricity being um, the transportation fuel, copper, which they call, they literally called it the oxygen of decarbonization because copper is what is what really, copper likes electricity. And what they were very concerned about in these conversations is that 50% of the copper is imported to the United States. We don't have a lot, you know, we're blessed with some, but we are going to be copper short, nickel short, cobalt short, lithium short, even with the lithium valley and the Salton Sea to meet the, the goals of the electrification. So it is, I don't put it out there that that's, you know, not something we can conquer and figure out, but it is certainly a barrier because as you know, this is, this is mined and the environmental community doesn't exactly like the mining of these rare earth minerals that are absolutely needed for the very transition that want to have. So no, there is no free energy. Everything has an issue associated with it. And so what is that right mix? That's why guys, we support an all of the above energy strategy. It's going to take everything. I can't tell you how many sessions I've heard the word all of the above energy strategy is the right way to get through the transition. So I, we just shouldn't take solutions off the table. And the one that aggravates me um, also is just carbon capture sequestration, which you know is one of the best technologies we have in the world to reduce carbon. And so why would we not want to do carbon capture sequestration and produce crude oil in a carbon negative way? Because we can, we can literally produce carb crude oil in a carbon negative way. And I'll tell you why they don't want that because it isn't about reducing emissions. It's about eliminating an industry. And that is not the California way. But a question I have is, uh, 
the carbon capture, and we had talked to the boilermakers, actually, they're, they're big on that. Uh, that's a big uh, push for them. And, you know, from their side there, they're making the same argument that you are. But I think the flip side of that argument is that the problem is not as much the carbon losses or the carbon emissions from the extracting the oil. It's the carbon emissions from burning the oil. And it's that that's really the concern. And you're saying 36 million cars on the road uh, in California, which to me seems like a lot of cars. <laughs> you know, 40, 40 million Californians, 36 million. Well, cars, cars and trucks, cars and trucks. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I have to say, I, I'm part of the problem. I have five cars. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't drive them all, but uh, none of them are at least not at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, so I think the concern, you know, the, uh, the environmentalist concern and people that are concerned about greenhouse gases, they're worried about burning the oil, not getting it. I mean, certainly you don't want to, you don't want to increase carbon emissions by just getting it out of the oil, but it's the burning the oil, and, and this is purely anecdotal for me. It sure seems like we're seeing a lot bigger cars and trucks on the road these days than there was 20 years ago. I know just when I go to park at our parking lot, the cars that I'm parking next to barely fit in the lot. There's a little teeny, there's only, you know, three inches of space on either side. And that is not the case. You know, I remember, you know, even 20 years ago, that was just not the case. John drives his Honda Pilot, which he refers to as his little car. Uh, yeah. And that thing is huge. So I know, don't, don't you hate when you're trying to get into one of those parking lots with two? Right? And it's like, God dang, why can't I pick one that had two Priuses next to me, right? But, exactly. And but, so you know, I, I, I do, you do bring up a, a, good, a good point, Tim. And, and, uh, and, you know, let's talk about the truck side for a minute. We had two refineries in the state of California convert to renewable diesel. That's amazing. I never thought in my lifetime I would see that. From traditional oil and gas to renewable diesel, what does that mean? That means it's a liquid fuel that has no fossil associated with it. That's amazing. So you think about that kind of innovation and technology to get to, while, while electric vehicles are increasing, right, how can we bring the emissions down on the existing fleet that we have? Because we're going to be, we're going to have them for quite a while, regardless of if we ban the sale of internal combustion engines in 2035, there's still going to be millions of them in 2035. So we got to figure out a way. How can we make the fuel in the automobile more efficient, less emissions? And we're doing it. I mean, on the diesel side, it's a little easier. On the gasoline side, why is it hard? As you know, we have what's called an ethanol blend wall. You can only put 10% ethanol in and then, you know, you have the, there, there's supposedly problems that occur, but there's a lot of discussion about going to 15% ethanol, which reduces the carbon emissions. So as we go down the path, your point's well taken. So let's do everything we can because they're going to be with us for a while. So as we increase electric vehicles, let's make sure the traditional uh, internal combustion engine is is as clean and efficient as it can, whether it's diesel, gasoline, or jet fuel, and talk about a remarkable innovation on the jet fuel side, right? We're, we're making renewable jet fuel. That's in, that's amazing. You know, so again, there's so much going down and you said, is there common ground? There's so much common ground to reduce emissions as we go down this pathway to innovate the best we can. It's all over the place. Innovation right now is all over the place. So that's the exciting side. So I think there is a lot of common ground, John, to your original question. And I think um, as long as we can get our hands around 
working together rather working against each other, then I think we will make progress. But I, do, I don't see, I don't, yesterday, the head of the, the Secretary of Energy reached out her hand to the entire audience in partnership with the oil and gas industry to, to deal with this critical energy security issue. We don't have that extended hand from this governor. And I do believe if we called all of the captains of industry together, we would find a way to figure out how to deal with the problem before us. But we don't do that. And, you know, my plea from this conversation would be that we start. Because without that, you're, you're missing the innovation of this, the very industry that can help you get where you want to go. And that's what we should be doing. And we're not doing it. I, Kathy, I have one last question. Is, is there any talk about or any interest in tapping the strategic oil reserve? Okay. Yes, there is talk here, um, especially in several of the sessions about doing that, um, which would be helpful. The, the effort that was done in the past, I can't remember what the president released earlier, but it wasn't enough to really matter. So there is discussion about that um, as a way to help minimize. So I don't know, I don't think any decisions been made, but to your point, John, they are, they are definitely discussing it. Uh, by the way, what is the conference that you're attending? I may have asked you this before, but we're exactly, I know you're in Houston, but what are yeah, you Yeah, so it is in Houston every year. It's an entire week long. It is all of the leaders of industry. So all the CEOs of certainly the companies that I represent and many that I don't. And it's international in nature. So every country is here, uh, except Russia definitely is not here. But um, Africa, Europe, Asia, China, the United States, of course, the UK, everybody is here. OPEC, all, all members across the board are here talking about the pace of change energy, climate, and innovation. That is the theme of the conference. And um, I, I'm taking time out of my conference for you both right. to know that, but it is intense. It starts at seven in the morning and goes to 10 at night, five days in a row. And there are hundreds of sessions. There's over in the other side of the convention is sessions called the hydrogen hub that we're all we're talking about is hydrogen, green hydrogen. Hydrogen, as you know, is one of the the best and cleanest fuels we can have. And so how do you get more hydrogen into every part of the supply chain to bring emissions down? That's really exciting stuff. We had sessions on the electricity grid. What are some of the barriers and infrastructures to have a, an electricity grid across the United States? Like what's keep, I mean, all those are happening right now, which, which is why there's so much excitement. We should be celebrating the amount of innovation that's occurring um, you know, every single day and yet, um, we can't seem to get our minds around the other question of energy security, which can help affordability, reliability, all those things we're going to have to happen as we go down the path of a lower carbon economy. Great. Kathy Reheis, boy, thank you very much. I, sus I uh, suggest that your convention here is go out at night, drink, have it a good time and party. That'll lubricate <laughs> the whole convention. Well, I would say that they do They do make sure they schedule enough receptions. Yeah, well, I <laughs> <laughs> Little I know of Houston, I don't think they have a problem parting everything down. So uh, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. I know you had to make some time squeezing in for us, so we thank you. And uh, now we, Tim Foster and I are going to turn to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. The worst week. And we think that person is Assemblyman Jim Cooper, who is running for sheriff. Sacramento County Sheriff, he carried a gun 
uh, carried a piece into the airport, Sacramento County, or, uh, Sacramento International Airport, I guess, carried one into the airport and it was caught at the security check, uh, carrying a loaded gun into airports. It's not a good idea. He's an elected official and a longtime um, law enforcement officer in Sacramento. Probably should have known better. This was not good. Tim? Uh, well, he just thought if Tim Donnelly could do it, I could do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think the most interesting nuance in this whole story is that apparently former police officers are allowed to bring weapons onto airport property, but not onto the plane itself, uh, which is a weird, I mean, they're former police officers. I don't know, maybe it means that they have enemies that might recognize them or something, but I think to myself, hey, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer was a former police officer. I don't need him to have a gun anywhere. Uh, so maybe we, should look at, maybe we should look at, you know, former police officer. But anyway, uh, not a good week for Jim Cooper. And uh, although, you know, he is running for sheriff. So maybe he really just wanted to get the more conservative votes. Figured this is a way to do it. You know, get those people who really like guns. Like, hey, this is my guy. This might be the thing. You know, who knows? In the end, this may really help him. So, uh so, so now, on the other hand, I did see a story. It was broken by the Fresno Bee uh, yesterday. We're, we're recording this on Thursday uh, about a four hundred thousand dollar fraudulent payment to uh, a phishing scam out of Africa. Uh, they paid a four hundred thousand dollar invoice for the construction of a of a police station back in November twenty twenty. Story just broke that they had done this yesterday. Uh, you know, again, all credit to the Fresno Bee for breaking that story. Uh, and that seems like a pretty horrible week, although really the, you know, the mayor that was in office at the time, Lee Brand, is, is no longer there. Uh, it's been two years, so we're probably stretching to, to call it. But I did think about that. That is really, uh, that was really a pretty astonishing story. And when you think about African phishing scams, I don't think about, you know, municipal invoicing uh, going through and accidentally getting paid you know, an impressive, an impressive feat by the uh, phishing scammer. Since we make our own rules, we can cover whatever we want. So that's good. And we'll keep we'll it give Jim Cooper, you know, Jim was supposed to uh, speak at our criminal justice policy conference uh, last week. And maybe this uh, gun thing is why he didn't. He's like, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should just lay low. Yeah. Jim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you soon. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.